papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ding-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis every week on the news media issues that you've just witnessed or perhaps some that you missed. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union, here with my wonderful host, Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio. You doing okay today, Professor? I am, and I'm really flattered by the wonderful word. Thank you so much, Rex. It's very charitable of you. I am just a font of charity. We are joined today by the amazing Rosemary Armeo, investigative journalist, professor, editor, etc. Rosemary, you there all right? I am. We're all getting great adjectives this morning. We, we are. <laughs> I didn't even know what I was doing there. The uh, you got to come up with for Judy now. <laughs> yeah, what can I say about Judy Patrick, a longtime editor of the Daily Gazette? Incomparable, I said. How's that? Is that correct? Uh, that was good. I was waiting for my adjective, and I, and I like that one. Thank you very much, Rex. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. It's it's true. You know, in, in journalism, we often tell young reporters, try to eschew adjectives, that is, step away from them if you can in favor of more powerful verbs, and that strengthens your writing by getting rid of extraneous words, and et cetera, et cetera. So I guess I could have said, instead of the amazing Alan Shartok, I could have said Alan powers the conversation or something. Anyway. <laughs> We're good. Show, don't tell. So this will be our first program of the 2021 year, but we're looking back at some things that have happened. And I just want to get your sensibility of this. Brian Stelter, the CNN media commentator who covers issues about the media for CNN Business, says that he believes the number one thing to understand about the Trump presidency, think about that, the number one thing to understand about the Trump presidency, he says, is enemy of the people, that what underlies what Trump has been able to do all comes down to the fact that he's been able to so legitimize hating the media that he has delegitimized any coverage. Alan, you buy that as being uh, the topic that has sort of made everything else possible for the Trump presidency? Not really. I think there's so much going on with Trump and so many despicable things that it's hard to say it's that. However, I can say that I do believe that there has always been a distrust of the media. We know that. And that Trump, I hate to use adjectives that Rosemary will shoot me down for properly, but he's he, in his own evil way, he's quite brilliant. So what he does is he looks for things to jump on that he thinks is latent in the population to begin with. And so that's why I think Trump chose the enemy of the people right from the very beginning. We all know that everybody has had different experiences with the press, some great, some not so great. And I think this is the reason he chose to start with enemy of the people. That's what I think. Rosemary, you think there's a way back from this? How do how can the media ever overcome this demonization that has left 40 percent of the people not believing anything we say? 
Well, I sure don't think it's easy. I think it's going to take years and maybe we'll never get back to where we were. It's not as if the media was held in such high regard to begin with. There were lots of problems. And indeed, as this program shows, we we have lots of problems about which there should be concerns. So his criticism, his demonization met with very fertile, ready ground. People were ready to believe what he was saying. And coming back from that, I mean, what I would do, I'm old school, so I would say we keep on doing our job. We search out the truth, tell full stories, apologize and correct when we make errors, all the standard stuff. And yet every one of those things I realize will only increase the belief in what Trump said. Every time there's a mistake, he was like, see, I told you fake news. Every time that they came out with a story holding him to account for bad things he did, and there were many, makes it again seem like we're biased and unfair. So I don't think this is an easy way out. Judy Patrick, so you're going to provide us the solution here. Here's the thing. We have actually the great term coming out of a USA Today poll that this is a cult president, somebody whose supporters will believe and trust him no matter anything. 78% of Republicans do not believe that Joe Biden was legitimately elected president. And this comes from news source Delineation, that is, on those who trust Fox News, 16% say that he was elected legitimately, 83% say he was not. So this is really a Fox News and right-wing phenomenon. So do you think there's a way out of this hole that the media are in now as a result of the rise of Donald Trump? I do. And I think that 78% number will come down over time. I think they caught that number at its height. I think it will go down. I think people like the New York Post has come around to say, hey, listen, Donald Trump, you lost. Fess up. One thing this whole experience has proven to me is, is the fact that we need much better civic education. It's more than media literacy for kids. It's civic education of all of us. People don't know who their state senators or assembly people are. They don't know who their Congress people are. They don't know how the Electoral College works. They didn't know there actually was an Electoral College. I think we need better civic education. It's going to be hard work. It's bit by bit. You have to build this trust back up. There's no doubt that this has been a hallmark of the Trump presidency, and he's done a lot of damage, but he hasn't destroyed it. I really agree with you on the civic education, and and we've talked about that here, but the difficulty is American education has focused so much on testing, on science and math, those being the things that terrified Americans 20 years ago that other nations were getting ahead of us because kids were testing higher from other countries. But the result has been that we don't test kids on standardized tests on civic issues. We don't make young people nearly as conversant with what America is as we require new citizens coming in. I mean, the tests for citizenship for immigrants are quite difficult by comparison to high school civics classes. So I think that is going to require some real focus in education. And, you know, maybe maybe we'll get the beginning of that with the Biden presidency and the change in the education department. I just want to point out, if I may, Rex, we have a federalist system, meaning that we have a federal government, we have a state government. So we can call for increased civics education But there are states under very strict Republican control, if you want to know, who will take a very different view of what civics education means than what might happen in New York State. And now, as far as testing goes, I took a regent's exam in American government, obviously, world history, and they asked some very difficult questions. I did quite well on it, as a matter of fact. Nevertheless, uh, <laughs> one of my great victories. What was your yeah. score? Do you still remember, Alan? <laughs> I, I, I think it was 100. But, um, 
but I may be wrong. You mean when you were in high school? Are we uh, high school? About, yeah, high school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is what you're, which is where you're calling for. Hey, you take your victories where you can get them, but nevertheless, um, <laughs> nevertheless, there are plenty of problems with how we define civics and civics education. I remember when, and I think I've spoken of this before, when my wife, who invented the first Holocaust unit that every kid had to take in the Great Barrington School System, was approached by a group of German people who thought that speaking so much about the Holocaust, if I remember the situation correctly, was anti-German. So there are always going to be people who have objections to what we think should be in a civics education curriculum. I want to disagree with the whole idea that civics education will help this lack of information, awareness, or our civil discourse. There are states, right now, Virginia is one of them. My son teaches civics. It's a full-time job. He teaches it in the public school system. And I don't see that Virginia is any more less benighted than New York is. And also, because education is under state control, no matter what Biden does, you're going to have some states that believe that civics education is teaching America is the best place on earth the way Trump did. He wanted to, for example, he put down the 1619 project, wanted to teach that, you know, vilifying Americans just because we killed off the natives and enslaved black people. That's just a bad idea. Well, will that improve really our civic discourse? You know, this is the media project, and all of this, of course, relates to media and to what's happening in this country. But I remember in high school, I had a teacher who made us read the New York Times every day. Not only did he make us read it every day, a guy named Sid Simon, but he taught us how to read it on the subway. In other words, how to hold it and fold it. And if you relate media usage to civics, that's pretty impressive. This is how Alan learned when to hold them and when to fold them. That's absolutely yeah. it. And I'm, I'm talking about civics education more than just in a school. I'm talking about how the media can be teachers as well. That Every local newspaper, every local television station, radio station, every network news station can start to present neutral information about how our government works. Because I can tell you that people don't understand it. And uh, if we put a renewed focus on that, not just among kids, but among adults as well, and get these conversations started to return to a more civil discourse about, well, what does the First Amendment actually mean? I think we can make progress there. I'm not talking just about high school and elementary school and college. I'm talking about adults as well. Sesame Street, back on the job. (laughs) (laughs) But, But, you know, think about this. Right now, as we speak today, it may be done by the time, Vice President Pence is going to be presiding because of the United States Constitution over the certification of the election, which we all know who won and who lost. Nevertheless, there is a new idea that he has the power to change the whole thing around. And when you talk about what the American people know or don't know, there's a perfect example of it. And that is a perfect example, again, of how the perversion of the process in the Trump presidency has led to this ignorance. I am sure that, like everybody else who has spoken up about the truth of who has won the election, that person becomes a target of Donald Trump and therefore of his cult. And I predict that Vice President Pence will become that next person. And it will, in fact, of course, damage his bid for the presidency in 2024. But here we're getting into politics. That'll make Donald Trump happy because it will clear one more candidate out of the way for him to relaunch his campaign, unless Cy Vance, the Manhattan DA, keeps him from it. 
Anyway, but that's political analysis. Never mind. Here's perhaps a bit of encouraging news, though. We've been concerned on this program for years about the declining interest in serious news coverage and real news coverage. There are statistics that are now released by market research firms that for businesses do consumer research so that they know where to advertise, where to place their messages. Here's one of the things they found out that in 2020, during this year of coronavirus, consumers have been increasing their use of newspapers. Now, we know that television is the main way people get news. That's the case. But the fact is that there was no change in TV consumption in 2020. There was a 5% decrease in the amount of time people spent with radio and an 18% increase in the amount of time people spent using daily newspapers. You know, we who come from the newspaper world take our comfort wherever we may. And I could say that 18% increase is probably understated because people a lot of times don't know what platform it is, where they're getting their news, since so much of newspaper reporting now is digital rather than in print. But there is some good news there. Are we right to celebrate this? My New Year's resolution is that I'm not going to look for false hope for newspapers anymore. I think they are dead and it's time to move on. All right. So it is a little bit of a silver lining because the bottom line here is that when this virus struck, people were interested in the global issues and the national issues and the state issues. But what they really cared about was what was happening to their schools, to their restaurants, whether the virus was in their town. And the way the media functions, the way they get that really good information they can rely on, they can't go to Facebook and hear the chatter or the rumors. They have to go to their local newspaper and find that. And in a time of real insecurity, insecurity, when people are really worried about their health, I think they can turn to a newspaper and get the kind of local information that they can't necessarily get from a broadcast situation. Twitter gives you much more localized, much faster information than newspapers do. But Twitter is very popular with journalists. Twitter is not a platform that a lot of ordinary consumers really like to use. Twitter is popular, but you look at young consumers, they're much more likely to go to Instagram or Snapchat or something else. Twitter is great for us for news, but it is not necessarily where consumers are getting it. And besides, if they do get information from Twitter, it could be coming from the newspaper, right? That's that's yeah, absolutely. Where does this originate? Mm-hmm. Including everything on television. Okay. That's long been the case. Well, I think that Twitter, Instagram, any social media that you want to name has a better looking future than does newspapers. If you want to talk about young people not using a media, newspapers, come on. They never did. Even when there was a heyday of newspapers, we relied on people who were older and more established. So, no, I do not see hope in this, but, and I do not think... Again, Rosemary, you're talking about the print product. A platform of paper, I agree, is going away. Uh, We will not have paper for very much in this world. But the digital delivery of newspaper reporting is fundamental to our future. Actually, I'm talking about both racks. I mean, the newspaper platforms all charge money. And I have students who don't read the Washington Post or the New York Times, so I consider the Bibles of American journalism because they have to pay for it and they don't want to. They go look for free stuff. So until something comes out that doesn't require money, you're not going to get young people. I just haven't seen it yet. I I wish you were right. I I don't like being this gloomy voice, but I think it's crazy to think that in seeing an 18% increase during a very specific, scary time means anything like goodness for the future of newspapers. 
But I do want to go back to something that's been said already. Newspapers, are no matter how many people are reading them, there's word of mouth. One person talks to other people. And newspapers, the Berkshire Eagle, the Berkshire Age, in Great Barrington, other places are giving out the news of how many people's got this COVID virus. And it's incredibly important. And I think it's a hell of a service, you know, that they're doing. And how long will it last when we're laying off reporters and closing down newspapers, offices, and shutting down publication dates? It's not a growth industry. We we can't wish it so just by saying it's important and necessary, which I agree with. You are so right. But the one thing thing we're all overlooking is the fact that young people, actually, they get old. And as they get older, they become more invested in their communities, get more concerned about their taxes. I know that this is the old argument among journalists, but, I mean, they're not going to be young forever. Everybody gets old. This happens. This generational shift has been happening for 100 years. I agree that we need to find a better way to get this information out and not to overload our websites with ads that clog up the reading experience and, and requiring people to pay. But there's always going to be a place for newspapers. And Twitter and Facebook, I found in this pandemic, have not been reliable sources of information. Well, folks, if you want to offer your thoughts, media at wamc.org is how we hear from you, and we'd be very happy to. That was Judy Patrick. You just heard from Vice President of the New York Press Association, Rosemary Armeo. Before that, investigative journalist Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio. And I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union, and this is The Media Project. So as we go on, let's pick up. Alan was just making the point, or Judy was making the point. So he was one of those people. <laughs> the important news that we are getting from our newspapers from the local media. But one of the things that has been troubling in the coronavirus era is we have, at a certain level, been unable to tell the whole story because of inadequate access to healthcare facilities. Something very interesting, a story that was published in The Intercept made note of the fact that guidelines issued by the Federal Department of Health and Human Services in May restricted access to medical facilities by journalists. Now, we know that there is HIPAA, the Federal Healthcare Portability Act, which includes standards providing privacy for patients. But the tightness of this privacy, the lockdown of information further was exacerbated by these new regulations that came out from Donald Trump's Department of Health and Human Services. And the result is we have not seen the kind of images of this disaster that we saw, for example, images coming out of the Vietnam War that helped to end that conflict Mm -hmm. over there. Mm -hmm. It does come to an interesting question of what is the priority here? Do people need to have that information? Or, you know, if you're a patient, you don't want to have a camera stuck in your face, right? Well, it has been interesting, Rex, to watch this on television unfold. What they do is make a fuzzy face out of somebody's face because they don't want to run afoul of HIPAA. Nevertheless, it is consistent with what Donald Trump has been doing all along about the press, which is to make sure that in any way he can and his agencies will help the press fail. For the last decade, it's always been incredibly difficult for a reporter to get into any hospital to do any to do stories because of HIPAA. But this has been an aggravated situation incredibly. What you're seeing are the lucky people who have been able to get in. It's not that the reporters aren't asking because I can guarantee you that every reporter around the country wants to get into those hospitals and tell those stories because they're horrific how people are suffering with this disease. And the idea that they're putting even further restrictions 
questions on reporter access is incredible to me. And in many of these cases, the patients and the families are agreeable to having a story done or a photograph taken, and the hospitals are putting the kibosh on it. And you're right, we haven't been seeing these horrific images, and the, um, I think that's one of the reasons why people aren't taking this this disease as seriously, seriously as they should. This is a horrible, horrible disease. It's a terrible way to die. And the people in the hospitals, from the from the doctors to the nurses to the to the orderlies, everyone is putting their lives at risk. And America's not seeing those images. Rosemary, do you have any sense that if we saw more of these disturbing images of death and dying, do you think that would move public opinion? Not really. I, you know, I worked in the Middle East where terrorism was a problem, and the newspapers there had no qualms about running pictures of basically shredded babies and gutted teenagers on the front page, supposedly to show the horribleness, uh, the horrors of terrorism. And the actual effect of that was that people stopped buying the newspapers, especially women, because they were so disgusted. So I'm not sure that that works. And the other thing I want to say is that I think journalists have brought some of this on ourselves. My sister, who was also a journalist for years, told a story about how when there was a gas explosion in Niagara Falls earlier in her career, she was sent into a hospital and she lifted the oxygen mask off of one of the victims in order to speak to him because it was pressure to get information about the story. That's the kind of behavior that gets you thrown out. That's an amazing story, lifting an oxygen mask off someone's face. I don't think we uh, would encourage reporters to do any such thing, but there has been this restriction. I just want to read the, uh, here's an art historian named Sarah Elizabeth Lewis. For society to respond in ways commensurate with the importance of this pandemic, we have to see it. For us to be transformed by it, it has to penetrate our hearts as well as our minds. Images force us to contend with the unspeakable. They help to humanize clinical statistics to make them comprehensible. And I think that's why the argument for allowing visual coverage, we know visuals affect us. That's why that kind of coverage, I think, could make a difference in the way people approach this particular crisis. But we're not going to get that. And it does go to, of course, the question that Americans tend to not like uncomfortable images anyway. You know, we used to have what we called in the old days the post-toasties test. Would that photograph on the front page of the newspaper turn people off as they're sitting there eating their breakfast cereal? And we therefore would be very careful about the photographs that we'd put on the front page to make sure we didn't offend the fragile sensibilities of American consumers. Judy, you ever had that concern making your front page photo decisions at the Gazette? Right. And in fact, you know, people used to argue, well, there is a difference between putting something on the front page and putting it inside. And I agree with that. But nowadays with the web, when you put something online, it's a lot harder to make that distinction. When it comes to the COVID coverage, I would even like to see more just text, more stories, more description about what's actually happening to these people. And you don't even, we're not even seeing a lot of those stories. I, I think the reporters aren't getting access to patients, even those suffering at home. I would love to see more stories about how this illness really affects people. But photos do say a thousand words. But again, it is hard to decide what to publish and what not to publish. It's interesting, though, because NPR is doing a lot of that. You know, it's talking to people who have suffered, people who lost parents, people who lost wives. I guess it's a lot easier to do to get them on the telephone and to talk to them than it is to get into a hospital with a camera. I think that's true. And actually, that's one of the powers of audio. One of the great things about radio is that you can get 
the actual voices of people and hear what they're going through much more easily. And sticking a camera in people's faces tends to change things. So I, I think that that is one of the great elements of audio coverage and one of the great trends of 2020 that we can look back on and say the rise of the podcast, the expansion of the market for audio coverage is one of the lingering effects that I think we'll see from these last few months. I wanted to mention one other positive note, Rex, that we have not talked about on this show that I can remember, and that's newsletters. They have become increasingly popular online among older people using the web, and they are long and thoughtful. There's one by Heather Cox Richardson, who is a, a professor who writes about politics, but in the context of the whole sweep of American history. And they're extraordinary. And they're a print product, so they appeal to a different demographic, but it's digital. So there are other forms, perhaps, that, that are coming out of this epidemic. That's not the epidemic so much as the politics of the recent years, but it's similar, I think. I think that's true. I was surprised Ben Smith of the uh, New York Times, the media columnist, yes. wrote about Heather Cox Richardson's newsletter, which I've been reading for months. I was surprised to find out that her target audience is women age 58 and, and so on. I didn't realize that I'm older than that and I'm not a woman, but uh, I have loved her newsletter because she brings that historical perspective to things. And I, I think that you're right. These newsletters, can you can target individuals and people can subscribe to newsletters that speak to the issues that matter to them most. It's a great form. And, you know, newsletters, by the way, are one of the major efforts that newspapers are using to try to reach an audience that we might not otherwise get. So, for example, right. the Times Union has seven or eight newsletters now that originate in the newsroom to target specific audiences. That's part of the future to try to preserve these old-fangled things called newspapers. And also they play into your news literacy, Rex. I'm reading Casey's, for example, at the Times Union. They give a glimpse into how newspapers work and why they do the things they do. They're extremely illuminating and interesting. Okay, well, a couple of bits of good news there as we uh, wind down this first program of 2021. We appreciate folks for taking the time to listen to us here. Judy Patrick, Rosemary Armeo, Alan Shartok have been with us here. I'm Rex Smith of the Times Union, and we are grateful to David Gustina, our producer, but especially to you, our audience, for listening. Thanks for joining us. We hope to see you again next week on The Media Project. Organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspapermen are such interesting people. When they know they've got a people. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor at large of the Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and former chair of the Department of Journalism at the University at Albany. You can listen to or podcast the Media Project anytime at WAMC. Org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. For publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.